0: The following is a conversation with Andrew Eng, one of the most impactful educators, researchers, innovators, and leaders in artificial intelligence and technology space in general. He co-founded Coursera and Google Brain, launched Deep Learning AI, Landing AI, and the AI Fund, and was the chief scientist at Baidu. As a Stanford professor and with Coursera and Deep Learning AI, he has helped educate and inspire millions of students, including me. This is the Artificial Intelligence Podcast. If you enjoy it, subscribe on YouTube, give it five stars on Apple Podcasts, support it on Patreon, or simply connect with me on Twitter at Lex Friedman, spelled F-R-I-D-M-A-N. As usual, I'll do one or two minutes of ads now and never any ads in the middle that can break the flow of the conversation. I hope that works for you, and doesn't hurt the listening experience. This show is presented by Cash App, the number one finance app in the App Store. When you get it, use code LEXPODCAST. Cash App lets you send money to friends, buy Bitcoin, and invest in the stock market with as little as $1. Broker services are provided by Cash App Investing, a subsidiary of Square, and member SIPC. Since Cash App allows you to buy Bitcoin, let me mention that cryptocurrency in the context of the history of money is fascinating. I recommend *A Cent of Money as a great book on this history. Debits and credits on ledgers started over 30,000 years ago. The US dollar was created over 200 years ago, and Bitcoin, the first decentralized cryptocurrency, released just over 10 years ago. So given that history, cryptocurrency is still very much in its early days of development, but is still aiming to, and just might redefine the nature of money. So again, if you get Cash App from the App Store or Google Play and use the code Podcast, you'll get $10, and Cash App will also donate $10 to FIRST, one of my favorite organizations that is helping to advance robotics and STEM education for young people around the world. And now, Here's my conversation with Andrew Eng. The courses you taught on machine learning at Stanford and later on Coursera that you co-founded have educated and inspired millions of people. So let me ask you, what people or ideas inspired you to get into computer science and machine learning when you were young? When did you first fall in love with the field? There's another way to put it.
1: Growing up in Hong Kong and Singapore, I started learning to code when i was five or six years old uh, at that time i was learning the basic programming language and I would take these books and you know they'll tell you type this program into your computer so type that program to my computer and as a result of all that typing uh, i would get to play these very simple shoot them-up games that that you know i had implemented on my on my little computer so i thought it was fascinating as a young kid uh, that i could write this code i was really just copying code from a book into my computer to then play these cool little video games. Another moment for me was um, when I was a teenager and my father, who's a doctor, was reading about expert systems and about neural networks. So he got me to read some of these books and um, I thought it was really cool that you could write a computer that started to exhibit intelligence. Then I remember doing an internship while I was in high school, uh, this was in Singapore, where. I remember doing a lot of photocopying and, and I was office assistant. Um, and the highlight of my job was when I got to use the shredder. So the teenager, of me remember thinking, boy, this is a lot of photocopying. If only we could write software, build a robot, something to automate this. Maybe I could do something else. So I think a lot of my work since then um has centered on the theme of automation. Even the way I think about machine learning today, we're very good at writing learning algorithms that can automate things that people can do. Um, Or even launching the first uh MOOCs, Mass Open Online Courses, that later led to Coursera. I was trying to automate what could be automatable in how I was teaching on
0: campus. Process of education, tried to automate parts of that to make it more sort of to have more impact from a single teacher, single educator.
1: Yeah, I I felt, you know, teaching at Stanford, uh, I was teaching machine learning to about 400 students a year at the time. And um, I found myself filming the exact same video every year, telling the same jokes in the (laughs) same room. And I thought, why am I doing this? Why don't we just yeah. take last year's video and then I can spend my time building a deeper relationship with students. So yes. that process of thinking through how to do that, that led to the first first MOOCs that we launched.
0: <laughs> and then you have more time to write new jokes. Are there favorite memories from your early days at Stanford teaching thousands of people in person and then millions of people uh, online?
1: You know, teaching online... What not many people know was that a lot of those videos were shot between the hours of 10 p.m. and 3 a.m. Um, yeah. A lot of times, uh, we, we, we're launching the first Moves Out Stanford. We'd already announced the course, about 100,000 people signed up. Uh, we just started to write the code and we had not yet actually filmed the videos. So, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of pressure, 100,000 people waiting for us to produce the content. So many Fridays, Saturdays, um, I would go out, have dinner with my friends. Uh, and then I would think, okay, do you wanna go home now? Or do you wanna to go to the office to film videos? And the thought of being able to help 100,000 people potentially learn machine learning, fortunately that um, made me think, okay, i want to go to my office, go to my tiny little recording studio. I would adjust my Logitech webcam, adjust my you know, Wacom tablet, make sure my lapel mic was on. <laughs> And then it would start recording often until 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. I think unfortunately it does that it doesn't, doesn't show that it was recorded that late at night, but uh, it was really inspiring the, 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 the thought that we could create content to help so many people learn about machine
0: learning. How did that feel? The fact that you're probably somewhat alone, maybe a couple of friends, recording with a Logitech webcam and kind of going home alone at 1 or 2 a.m. at night and knowing that that's going to reach, sort of thousands of people, eventually millions of people, is th- <laughs> what's that feeling like? I mean, is there a feeling of just satisfaction of pushing through? I think it's humbling, and
1: I wasn't thinking about what I was feeling. I think one thing we, uh, that I'm proud to say we got right from the early days was. Um, I told my whole team back then that the number one priority is to do what's best for learners, do what's best for students. And so when I went to the recording studio, the only thing on my mind was, what can I say? How can I design my slides? What do I need to draw right to make these concepts as clear as possible for learners? Um, I think, you know, I- I've seen sometimes instructors is tempting to, hey, let's talk about my work. Maybe if I teach you about my research, someone will cite my papers a couple more times. And I think one of the things we got right, launching the first few MOOCs and to building Coursera was putting in place that bedrock principle of let's just do what's best for learners and forget about everything else. And and I think that that as a guiding principle turned out to be really important to the to the rise of the MOOC movement.
0: And the kind of learner you imagined in your mind is as as broad as possible, as global as possible. So really try to reach as many people interested in machine learning and AI as possible. I really wanna help anyone that had an interest in machine learning
1: uh, to break into the field. And and I, I think sometimes I've actually had people ask me, hey, why are you spending so much time explaining gradient descent? And yeah. and, and my answer was, um, if I look at what I think the learner needs and would benefit from, I felt that having that, um, a good understanding of the foundations, kind of back to the basics, would put them in a better stead to then build on a long-term career. So try to consistently make decisions on that principle.
0: So one of the things you actually revealed to the narrow AI community at, at the time and, and to the world is that the amount of people who are actually interested in AI is much larger than we imagined. By you teaching the class and how popular it became, it showed that, wow, this isn't just a small community of sort of people who go to an and and it's, it's much bigger, it's developers, it's people from all over the world, From <laughs> I mean, I'm Russian, so there's everybody in Russia is really interested. There's a huge number of programmers who are interested in machine learning, India, China, uh, South America, everywhere. There's just millions of people who are interested in machine learning. So how big do you get a sense that this, the number of people is that are interested from I your perspective?
1: I think the numbers grown over time. I, I think it's one of those things that maybe it feels like it came out of nowhere, but it's an insider building it, it took years. It's one of those overnight successes that took years yeah. to, to, to get there. My first foray into this type of online education was when we we're filming my Stanford class and sticking the videos on YouTube and then some other things. We had uploaded the whole and so on. But it's, you know, basically the one hour, 15 minute video that we put on YouTube. Um, and then we had four or five other versions of websites that I had built, uh, most of which you would never have heard of because they reached small audiences, but that allowed me to iterate, allowed my team and me to iterate, to learn what are the ideas that work and what doesn't. Uh, For example, one of the features I was really excited about and really proud of was, build this website where multiple people could be logged into the website at the same time. So today, if you go to a website, you know if you're logged in and then I wanna log in, you need to log out if it's the same browser, the same computer. Okay. But I thought, well, what if two people, say you and me, were watching a video together in front of a computer? What if a website could have you type your name and password, have me type my name and password, and then now the computer knows both of us are watching together mm-hmm. and it gives both of us credit for anything we do as a group. Uh, Infantist feature rolled it out in a high, in, in a school in San Francisco. Uh, we had about 20 something users. Um, uh, where's the teacher there? Sacred Heart Cathedral Prep. The teacher is great. Um, and guess what? Zero people use this feature. It uh, turns out people studying online, they want to watch the videos themselves you can play back pause at your own speed rather than in groups so that was one example of a tiny lesson learned uh, out of many that allowed us to hone into the set of features
0: that and it sounds like a brilliant feature so I guess the lesson to take from that is uh, you <laughs> there's uh, something that looks amazing on paper and then nobody uses it. it doesn't actually have the the impact that you think it might have yeah. And so yeah I, I saw that you've really went through a lot of different features and a lot of ideas. And yeah. uh, to arrive at the final- at Coursera at the final kind of powerful thing that showed the world that MOOCs can educate millions and I think
1: with with the whole um machine learning movement as well, I think it didn't come out of nowhere instead. what happened was uh as more people learn about machine learning, they will tell their friends and their friends will see how it's applicable to their work and then and then the community kept on growing um and I think we're still growing. You know, I don't know in the future what percentage of all developers will be AI developers. Um, I could easily see it being north of fifty percent, right? Because um, uh, so many uh, AI developers, broadly construed, not just people doing the machine learning modeling, but the people building infrastructure, data pipelines, you know, all, all the softwares surrounding the core machine learning model, uh, maybe is even bigger. I feel like today, almost every software engineer has some understanding of the cloud. Not all you know uh, but maybe it's this my microcontroller developer doesn't need to deal with the cloud, but I feel like the vast majority of software engineers today are sort of having an appreciation of the cloud. I think in the future maybe we'll approach nearly a hundred percent of all developers being you know in some way an AI developer or at least having an appreciation of, of machine learning
0: and, and my hope is that that there's this kind of effect that there's people who are not really interested in software. To being a programmer or being into software engineering, like biologists, chemists, and physicists, uh, even mechanical engineers, all these disciplines that are now more and more sitting on large data sets. And here they didn't think they're interested in programming until they have this data set and they realize there's this set of machine learning tools that allow you to use the data set. So they actually become, they learn to program and they become new programmers. So, like, the not just cuz you've mentioned a larger percentage of developers become machine See. learning people the it seems like more and more the the kinds of people who are becoming developers is also growing significantly yeah,
1: yeah. I, I think i think once upon a time um only a small part of humanity was literate you know, could read and write right. and, and and maybe you thought maybe not everyone needs to learn to read and write you know you just um, go listen to, to, to a few monks, right, right? Read to you. Uh, and maybe that was enough. Or maybe we just need a few handful of authors to write the bestsellers and then no one else needs to write. But what we found was that by giving as many people, you know, in, in some countries, almost everyone basic literacy, it dramatically enhanced human to human communications. And we can now write for an audience of one, such as if I send you an email or you send me an email. Um, I think in computing, we're still in that. Phase where so few people know how to code that the coders mostly have to code for relatively large audiences. But if everyone, or most people became um, developers at some level, similar to how most people in developed economies are somewhat literate, I would love to see the owners of a mom and pop store be able to write a little bit of code to customize the TV display for their special this week. Yeah. And I think it'll enhance human-to-computer communications, uh, which is becoming more and more important today as well.
0: So you, you think you think it's possible that machine learning becomes kind of a, a similar to literacy, where where yeah, like you said, the owners of a mom and pop shop is, is basically everybody in all walks of life would have some degree of programming capability.
1: I could see society getting there. Um, there's one other interesting thing, you know. If I go talk to the mom and pop store, if I talk to a lot of people in their daily professions, I previously didn't have a good story for why they should learn to code. You know, we could give them some reasons. But what I found with the rise of machine learning and data science is that I think the number of people with a concrete use for data science uh, in their daily lives, in their jobs, maybe even larger than the number of people with concrete use for software engineering. Uh, for example, if you run, actually, if you run a small mom and pop store, I think if you can analyze the data about your sales, your customers, there's, I think there's actually real value there, uh, maybe even more than traditional software engineering. So I find that for a lot of my friends in various professions, be it recruiters or accountants or, you know, people that work in factories, which I deal with more and more these days, um, I feel if they were data scientists at some level, they could immediately use that in their work. Uh, So I think that data science and machine learning may be an even easier entree into the developer world for a lot of people than the software
0: engineering. That's interesting. And I I agree with that, but that's uh, beautifully put. We live in a world where most courses and talks have slides, PowerPoint, Keynote, and yet you famously often still use a marker and a whiteboard the simplicity of that is uh, compelling and, for me at least, fun to watch. Thank you. So let me ask, why do you like using a marker and whiteboard, even on the biggest of stages?
1: I think it depends on the concepts you want to explain. Uh, for mathematical concepts, it's nice you can build up the equation one piece at a time uh, and the whiteboard marker or the pen and stylus is a very easy way you know, to build up an equation, to build up a complex concept one piece at a time uh, while you're talking about it. And sometimes that enhances understandability. Um, the, the downside of writing is that it's slow. And so if you want a long sentence, it's very hard to write that. So I think there are pros and cons. And sometimes I use slides and sometimes I use a, a whiteboard or a
0: stylus. The slowness of a whiteboard is also its upside because it forces you to Reduce everything to the basics. I see. So, so some of uh, some of your talks that involve the whiteboard. I, I mean, it's there's yeah. really not you go very slowly and you really focus on the most simple principles. And that's a, that's a beautiful that enforces a kind of a minimalism of ideas that I think is surprisingly, at least for me, is is great for, for education. Like a great talk, I think, is not one that has a lot of content. A great talk is one that just clearly says a few simple ideas, and I think you, (laughs) the whiteboard somehow enforces that. Peter Abiel, who is now one of the top roboticists and reinforcement learning experts in the world, was your first PhD student. So I bring him up just because I kind of imagine this is um, this was must have been an interesting time in your life. Do you have any favorite memories of working with Peter, your your first student, in those uncertain times, especially before deep learning really um, really sort of uh, blew up? Any favorite memories from those times?
1: Yeah, um, I was really fortunate to have had Peter with as my first PhD student, um, and I think even my long-term professional success builds on early foundations or early work that that that. Peter was so critical to so I was really grateful to him uh, for working with me Um, you know what not a lot of people know is just how hard research was and and still is Um, Peter's PhD thesis was using reinforcement learning to fly helicopters uh, and so you know actually even today the website heli.stanford.edu h-e-l-i.stanford.edu is still up you can watch videos of us using reinforcement learning to make a helicopter fly upside down fly loops rolls it's just cool
0: it's one of the most incredible robotics videos ever so people oh, you should watch it, it. oh well, yeah thank it's you inspiring that's from uh like 2008 or 7 or 6 yeah, like that range something like that it's like
1: yeah so it so was over 10 years
0: old that was really inspiring um, to a lot of people yeah
1: what not many people see is how hard it was. Uh, so Peter and um, Adam Coles and Morgan Quigley and I were working on various versions of the helicopter and a lot of things did not work. Uh, for example, turns out one of the hardest problems we had was when the helicopter is flying around upside down doing stunts, how do you figure out the position? How do you localize a helicopter? So we wanted to try all sorts of things. Uh, having one GPS unit, doesn't work because you're flying upside down, GPS units facing down, so you can't see the satellite. So we tried, um, we, we we experimented trying to have two GPS units, one facing up, one facing down. So mm-hmm. if you flip over, that didn't work because the downward facing one couldn't synchronize if you're flipping quickly. Um, Morgan Quigley was exploring this crazy complicated configuration of specialized hardware to interpret GPS signals. Look into FPGAs, is completely insane. Spent about a year working on that. Um, didn't work. So I remember Peter, great guy, him and me, you know, sitting down in my office looking at some of the latest things we had tried that didn't work and saying, you know, done it, like, what now? Because because we tried so many things and it, and it just didn't work. Um, in the end, uh, what we did and Adam Coles was was crucial to this, was uh, put cameras on the ground and use cameras on the ground to localize a helicopter. And that solve the localization problem so that we could then focus on the reinforcement learning and inverse reinforcement learning techniques to so then actually make the helicopter fly. Um, and, you know, I'm reminded when, when I was doing um, this work at Stanford around that time, there was a lot of reinforcement learning theoretical papers but not a lot of practical applications. So the uh, autonomous helicopter where for flying helicopters uh, was, was one of the few you know practical applications of reinforcement learning at the time, which which caused it to become pretty well-known. Um, I, I feel like we, we might've almost come full circle, with today there's so much buzz, so much hype, so much excitement yeah. about reinforcement learning. But again, we're hunting for more applications of all of these great ideas that, that the community's come up with.
0: What was the drive sort of in the face of the fact that most people are doing theoretical work, what motivate you in the uncertainty and the challenges to get the helicopter, sort of to do the the applied work, to get the actual system to work? Yeah, in the face of fear, uncertainty, sort of uh, the setbacks that you mentioned for localization.
1: I like stuff that works.
0: I, 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 I in the physical it. world. So like, it's, it's back to the shredder. and the <laughs> yeah.
1: You know, I, I, I like theory, but when I work on theory myself, and this is personal taste, I'm not saying anyone else should do what I do. But when I work on theory, I personally enjoy it more if I feel that my the, the work I do will influence people, have positive impact, or help someone. Um, I remember when uh, many years ago, I was speaking with a mathematics professor, and it kind of just said, hey, why do you do what you do? Uh, and 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 he said he 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 actually you know he had stars in his eyes when he answered, and this mathematician, um not, not from Stanford, different university, he said, I do what I do because it helps me to discover truth and beauty in the universe, yeah he had stars in his eyes when he said, "Yeah." It. and I thought that's great. um I don't want to <laughs> do that. I think it's great that someone does that fully support the people that do it, a lot of respect for people that but I am more motivated when I can see a line to how the work that my teams and I are doing helps people. Um, the world needs all sorts of people. I'm just one type. I don't think everyone should do things the, the same way as I do. But I, 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 when I delve into either theory or practice, if I personally have conviction, you know that here's a pathway to help people, uh, I, I find that more satisfying to have that conviction.
0: That's, that's your path. You were a proponent of deep learning before it gained widespread acceptance. What did you see in this field that gave you confidence? What what was your thinking process like in that first decade of the, I don't know what that's called, 2000s, the aughts?
1: Yeah, I can tell you the thing we got wrong and the thing we got right. The thing we really got wrong was the importance of, uh, the early importance of unsupervised learning. So, early days of Google Brain, we put a lot of effort into unsupervised learning rather than supervised learning. And there was this argument, actually, I think it was around um, 2005 uh, after uh, you know, NeurIPS, at that time called NIPS, but now NeuroPs had ended. And uh, Jeff Hinton and I were sitting in the cafeteria outside you know, the conference, we had lunch, we were just chatting. And Jeff pulled up this napkin, he started sketching this argument on a, on a napkin, It was very compelling as I'll repeat it. Um, human brain has about a uh, hundred trillion. So that's 10 to the 14 synaptic connections. Uh, you will live for about 10 to the nine seconds. Uh, that's 30 years. You actually live for two, two, two by 10 to the nine, maybe three by 10 to the nine seconds. So just let's say 10 to the nine. Yeah. So if each synaptic connection, each weight in your brain's neural network has just a one bit parameter, that's 10 to the 14 bits you need to learn in up to 10 to the nine seconds mm-hmm. of your life. So via this simple argument, which is a lot of problems, it's very simplified, yeah. that's 10 to the five bits per second you need to learn in your life. And um, I have a one-year-old daughter. Uh, I am not pointing out 10 to five bits per second of labels to her. So, and and uh, I think I'm a, I'm a very loving parent, but I'm just not gonna do that, right? <laughs> yeah. um, so from this you know, very crude, definitely problematic argument, there's just no way that most of what we know is through supervised learning but where you get so many bits of information is from sucking in images audio just experiences in the world um and so that argument uh and and there are a lot of known forces argument you know go go into really convinced me that there's a lot of power to unsupervised learning um so that was the part that we actually maybe maybe got wrong I, i still think unsupervised learning is really important but we uh uh, but but in the early days, you know, ten, fifteen years ago, a lot of us thought that was the path forward.
0: Oh, so you you're saying that, that that perhaps was the wrong intuition for the time.
1: For the time. That, that that was the part we got wrong. The part we got right was the importance of scale. So uh Adam Coates, uh another wonderful person fortunate to have worked with him. Um, he was in my group at Stanford at the time and Adam had run these experiments at Stanford showing that the bigger we train a you know, learning algorithm, the better its performance. And it was based on that, uh, there was a graph that Adam generated, you know, uh, where the x-axis, y-axis, lines going up into the right. So bigger you make this thing, the better performance accuracy is the vertical axis. Mm -hmm. So it's really based on that chart that Adam generated that it gave me the conviction that we could scale these models way bigger than what we could on a few CPUs, which is what we had at Stanford, that we could get. Even better results. And it was really based on that one figure that Adam generated <laughs> that gave me the conviction, uh, to go with Sebastian Thrun to pitch, you know, starting, starting a project at, at Google,
0: which became the Google Brain project. Google Brain, you go find a Google Brain. And there the intuition was scale will bring performance for the system. So we should chase a larger and larger scale. And All I right. think people don't, don't realize how a groundbreaking of a, it's simple, but it's a groundbreaking idea that bigger data sets will result in better performance.
1: It was controversial at the time. Uh, some of my well-meaning friends, you know, senior people in the machine learning community, I won't name, but who's okay. people, some, some of whom we, we know. Uh, my well-meaning friends came and were trying to give me friendly advice. Like, hey, Andrew, why are you doing this? This is crazy. It's in the neural network architecture. Look at these architectures of building. You just want to go for scale? Like, this is a bad career move. So so my, my well-meaning friends, you know, were trying to. some of them were trying to talk me out of it. Um uh, but I find that if you want to make a breakthrough, you sometimes have to have conviction and do something before it's popular, since that lets you have a bigger impact.
0: Let, let me ask you just in a small tangent on that topic. I find myself uh, arguing with people saying that greater scale, especially in the context of active learning, so very carefully selecting the data set, but growing the scale of the data set is going to lead to even further breakthroughs in deep learning and there's currently pushback at that idea that larger data sets are no longer that so you want to increase the efficiency of learning you you want to make better learning mechanisms and I personally believe that just bigger data sets will still with the same learning methods we have now will, will result in better performance what's your intuition at this time on those I on the this dual? side is do we need to come up with better architectures for learning or can we just get bigger better data sets that will improve performance
1: i think both are important and it's also problem dependent so for All a right. few data sets we may be approaching you know base error rate or approaching or surpassing human level performance and, and then there's that theoretical ceiling that we will never surpass a so base error rate um But then I think there are plenty of problems where where we're still quite far from either human level performance or from Bayes' error rate. And uh, bigger data sets with neural networks without further algorithm innovation will be sufficient to take us further. Um, but on the flip side, if we look at the recent breakthroughs using, you know, transformer networks for language models, it was a combination of novel architecture, uh, but also scale had a lot to do with it. If we look at what happened with, you know, GP2 and BERT, I think scale was a large part of the story.
0: Yeah, that's that's not often talked about is the the scale of the data set it was trained on and the quality of the data set because there's some uh so it was like redded threads that had they were operated highly, so there's already some weak supervision on a very large data set that I people see. don't often talk about right I find
1: that today we have pre- we're maturing processes to managing code you know, things like git right version control uh, It took us a long time to to evolve the good processes I, I, I remember I remember when my friends and I were emailing each other c plus plus files and <laughs> email you know yeah. but then we had was it CVS a version git maybe something else in the future um we're very immature in terms of tools of managing data and think about how to clean data and how to solve very hard, messy data problems. I I think there's a lot of innovation there to be
0: had still. I love the idea that you were versioning through email. I'll give
1: you one example. Um, When we work with uh, uh, manufacturing companies, is not at all uncommon for uh there to be multiple labels that disagree with each other right and so we would um doing the work in visual inspection uh we will you know take say a plastic pot and show it to one inspector and the inspector sometimes very opinionated they'll go clearly that's a defect this scratch unacceptable gotta reject this part yeah. take the same part to a different inspector Different, very affinated. Clearly, the scratch is small. It's fine. Don't throw it away. You're going to make us, you and then sometimes you take the same plastic pot, show it to the same inspector in the afternoon, I suppose in the morning, and very affinated go in the morning to say, clearly, it's okay. In the afternoon, equally confident. Clearly, this is a defect. And so what is an AI team supposed to do if, if, if sometimes even one person doesn't agree with himself or herself in the span of a day? So I think these are the types of, um, very practical, very messy data problems that 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 you know that my teams wrestle with. Um, in the case of large consumer internet companies, where you have a billion users, you have a lot of data, you don't worry about it, just take the average, it kind of works. But in the case of other industry settings, we don't have big data. if just a small data, very small data sets, maybe around 100 defective parts um, uh, or 100 examples of a defect. If you have only a hundred examples, these little labeling errors, you know if if ten of your hundred labels are wrong, that actually is ten percent of your data set has a big impact. So how do you clean this up? What are you supposed to do? D- this is an example of the of the types of things that um my teams th- this is a landing AI example are wrestling with to deal with small data, which comes up all the time once you're outside consumer internet.
0: yeah, that's fascinating. And so then you invest more effort and time in thinking about the actual labeling process. What are the labels? What are the, how are disagreements resolved and all those kinds of like pragmatic real world problems. That's a fascinating space.
1: Yeah, I find it actually when I'm teaching at Stanford, I increasingly encourage students at Stanford to um, try to find their own project Hmm. uh for, for the end of term project rather than just downloading someone else's nicely clean data set it's actually much harder if you need to go and define your own problem and find your own data set rather than you know, go to one of the several good websites very good websites with with clean scoped data sets that you could just work on
0: you're now running three efforts the AI fund, landing ai and deep learning AI. As you've said, the AI fund is involved in creating new companies from scratch. Landing AI is involved in helping already established companies do AI, and deep learning AI is for education of everyone else, or of individuals interested in getting into the field and excelling in it. So let's perhaps talk about each of these areas first. deeplearning.ai, how, the basic question, how does a person interested in deep learning get started in the field? Deep
1: Learning to AI is working to create courses to help people break into AI. So uh my machine learning course that I taught through Stanford remains one of the most popular courses on Coursera.
0: To this day, it's probably one of the courses... Sort of, if I ask somebody, how did you get into machine learning, or how did you fall in love with machine learning, or would get you interested, they, it always goes back to an, <laughs> Andrew rang at some point. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, sure. so you've thank influenced you. the amount of people you've influenced is ridiculous. So for that, no, no. I, I'm sure I speak for a lot of people. Who say big thank you. <laughs> no, yeah,
1: thank you. You know, I, I was once once reading a news article. Um, uh, I think it was Tech Review and. I'm going to mess up the statistic, but I remember reading an article that said um, something like one third of all programmers are self-taught. I may have the number one third wrong; maybe it was two thirds. But when I read that article, I thought this doesn't make sense. Everyone is self-taught, so because <laughs> you you teach yourself. I don't teach people. <laughs> right. I just
0: um, that's well put. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah. So how how does one get started in deep learning, and where does deep fit into that?
1: So the deep learning specialization offered by deeplearning.ai AI is. Uh, is it, i think uh one it was Coursera's top specialization uh, it might still be so it's a very popular way for people to take that specialization to learn about everything from neural networks to uh, how to tune a neural network to what is a net do what is a rnN or a sequence model or what is an attention model and so the design specialization um steps everyone through those algorithms so you deeply understand it and can implement it and use it for, for whatever application.
0: From the very doing. beginning. So what would you say are the prerequisites for somebody to take the deep learning specialization in terms of maybe math or programming background?
1: Yeah, need to understand basic programming since there are programming exercises in Python. Uh, and the math prereq is quite basic. So no calculus is needed. If you know calculus is great, you get better intuitions, but deliberately try to teach that specialization without requiring calculus. So I think um, high school math would be sufficient. Uh, if you know how to multiply two matrices, I think I think that, that, that's, that that's great.
0: Uh, so a little basic linear algebra is great
1: basically in the algebra, even very, very basically in the algebra in some programming. Um, I think that people that have done the machine learning course will find the deep learning specialization a bit easier, but it's also possible to jump into the deep learning specialization directly, but it'll, it'll be a little bit harder since we tend to, you know, go over faster uh, concepts like how does gradient descent work and what is an objective function, which which is covered more slowly in the machine learning course.
0: Could you briefly mention some of the key concepts in deep learning that students should learn that you envision them learning in the first few months, in the first year or so?
1: So if you take the deep learning specialization, you learn the foundations of what is a neural network. How do you build up a neural network from a single logistic unit to a stack of layers to um, different activation functions. You learn how to train the neural networks. One thing I'm very proud of in that specialization is we go through a lot of practical know-how of how to actually make these things work. So what are the differences between different optimization algorithms? Uh, What do you do if the algorithm overfits? So how do you tell if the algorithm is overfitting? When do you collect more data? When should you not bother to collect more data? I find that... um, Even today, unfortunately, there are engineers that will spend six months trying to pursue a particular direction, uh, such as collect more data, because we heard more data is valuable. But sometimes you could run some tests and could have figured out six months earlier that for this particular problem, collecting more data isn't going to cut it. So just don't spend six months collecting more data. Spend your time. Modifying the architecture or trying something else. So, go through a lot of the practical know how so that when, uh, when, when, when someone, when you take the DVM specialization, you have those skills to be very efficient in how you build these networks.
0: So, dive right in to play with the network, to train it, to do the inference on a particular data set, to build an intuition about it without, without, um building it up too big to where you spend, like you said, six months learning, building up your big project without building any intuition of a small small aspect of the data that could already tell you everything you need to know about that data.
1: Yes, and also the systematic frameworks of thinking for how to go about building practical machine learning. Maybe to make an analogy, um when we learn to code, we have to learn the syntax of some programming language, right? Be it Python or C++ or Octave or whatever. Um but the equally important or maybe even more important part of coding is to understand how to string together these lines of code into coherent things. So, you know, when should you put something in a function call and when should you not? How do you think about abstraction? So those frameworks um uh, what makes a programmer efficient, uh, even more than understanding the syntax. I remember when I was an undergrad at Carnegie Mellon, um, one of my friends would debug their code by first trying to compile it, and then it was C++ code. And then every line that is a syntax error, uh, they want to get rid of the syntax errors as quickly as possible. So how do you do that? Well, they would delete every single line of code with a syntax error. <laughs> so really efficient for getting rid of syntax errors for horrible right. debugging errors. So I yes. think, so we learned how to debug. Uh, and I think in machine learning, the way you debug a machine learning program is very different than the way you, you know, like do binary search or whatever, or use a debugger, or trace through the code in, in traditional software engineering. Mm-hmm. So, it's an evolving discipline, but I find that the people that are really good at debugging machine learning algorithms are easily ten x, maybe hundred x faster at getting something to work.
0: So, and the basic and, process of debugging is, so, so the 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 bug in this case, why isn't this thing learning? Uh, learning, improving, sort of going into the questions of overfitting and all those kinds of things. Yeah. That's that's the logical space that the debugging is happening in with neural networks.
1: Yeah, the, the, often the question is, um, why doesn't it work yet? Uh, <laughs> right. or, or can I expect it to eventually work? Yeah. Uh, and what are the things I could try? Change the architecture, more data, more regularization, different optimization algorithm, you know, uh, different types of data. So to answer those questions systematically so that you don't heading down the, so you don't spend six months heading down the blind alley before someone comes and says, why did you spend six months doing this?
0: What concepts in deep learning do you think students struggle the most with? Or sort of is, is the biggest challenge for them once to get over that hill? It's, uh, it hooks them and it inspires them and they really get it.
1: Similar to learning mathematics, I think one of the challenges of deep learning is that there are a lot of concepts that build on top of each other. Um, If you ask me what's hard about mathematics, I have a hard time pinpointing one thing. Is it addition, subtraction? Is it carry? Is it multiplication? There's just a lot of stuff. I think one of the challenges of learning math um, and of learning certain technical fields is that there are a lot of concepts and if you miss a concept, then you're kind of missing the prerequisite for something that comes later. Uh, so in the deep learning specialization, um, try to break down the concepts to maximize the odds of you know, each component being understandable. So when you move on to the more advanced thing, we learn you know, confidence. Hopefully you have enough intuitions from the earlier sections to then understand why we structure confidence in a certain uh, certain way. And then and, and eventually why we built you know, RNNs on LSTMs or attention model in a certain way, building on top of the earlier concepts. Actually, I'm I'm curious. You 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 do a lot of teaching as well. Do you have a uh, do you have a favorite? This is the hard concept moment in your teaching.
0: Well, I don't think anyone's ever turned the interview on me. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm glad to be first. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I think that's a really good question. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really hard to capture the moment when they struggle. I think you put it really eloquently. I do think there's moments that are like uh, aha moments that really inspire people. I think for some reason, reinforcement learning, especially deep reinforcement learning, is a really great way to really inspire people and get what the use of neural networks can do. Even though neural networks, Really are just a, a part of the the deep RL framework, but it's a really nice way to the to paint the entirety of the picture of uh, a neural network being able to learn from scratch, knowing nothing, and explore the world and pick up lessons. I find that a lot of the aha moments happen when you use deep RL to teach people about neural networks, which is counterintuitive. I find like a lot of the inspired sort of fire in people's passion in people's eyes comes from the the RL world. Do you find reinforcement learning to be a useful part of the teaching process or no?
1: I still teach reinforcement learning in one of my Stanford classes, uh, and my PhD thesis was on reinforcement right. learning, so I clearly <laughs> love the field. I find that if I'm trying to teach students the most useful techniques for them to use today, I end up, shrinking the amount of time I talk about reinforcement learning. It's not what's working today. Now, our world changes so fast, maybe this will be totally different in a couple of years. years. Um, but I think we need a couple more things for reinforcement learning to get there. To actually get there, yeah. One of my teams is looking to reinforcement learning for some robotic control tasks. So I see the applications, but if you look at it as a percentage of all of the impact of, you know, the types of things we do is, at least today, uh, outside of, you know, playing video games right in a few of right. the games the the, the the scope actually at, at NeurIPS a bunch of us were standing around saying hey what's your best example of an actual deploy reinforcement learning application and you know among you know, like senior machine learning researchers right and again there are some emerging ones but there are there are not that many great examples
0: well, so I, I think you're absolutely right the sad thing is there hasn't been a big application impactful real world application reinforcement learning. I think its biggest impact to me has been in the toy domain, in the game domain, in the small example. That's what I mean for educational purpose. It seems to be a fun thing to explore neural networks with. But I think from your perspective, and I think that might be the best perspective is if you're trying to educate with a simple example in order to illustrate how this can actually be grown to scale and have a real World impact, then perhaps focusing on the fundamentals of supervised learning in the context of, you know, uh, a simple data set, even like an MNIST data set, is the right way, is the, is the right path to take. I just uh, the amount of fun I've seen people have with reinforcement learning has been great, but not in the applied impact on the real world setting. Yeah. So it's a it's a trade-off: how much impact you want to have versus how much fun you want to have. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's really cool, and I, I feel like you know the the world actually needs all sorts. Uh, even within machine learning, I feel like deep learning is so exciting, but the AI teams shouldn't just use deep learning. I find that my teams use a portfolio of tools, yeah. uh, and maybe that's not the exciting thing to say, but. Some days we use a neural net, some days we use a, you know, a PCA, uh, actually the other day I was sitting down with my team looking at PCA residuals, trying to figure out what's going on with PCA applied to manufacturing problem. And some days we use a prophecy graphical model. Some days we use a knowledge draft, uh, which is one of the things that has tremendous industry impact, but the, the amount of chatter about knowledge drafts in academia is really thin compared to the actual roller impact. So, so I think reinforcement learning should be in that portfolio. And then it's about balancing how much we teach all of these things and the world, the world should have diverse skills. It'd be sad if, you know, everyone just learned one, one narrow thing.
0: Yeah. The diverse skill help you discover the right tool for the job. What is the most beautiful, surprising, or inspiring idea in deep learning to you? Something that captivated your imagination. Is it the scale that could be, uh, the performance that could be achieved with scale, or is there other ideas?
1: I think that if my only job was being an academic researcher Mm -hmm. if an unlimited budget and, you know, didn't have to worry about short-term impact and only focus on long-term impact, I probably spend all my time doing research on unsupervised learning. Um, I still think unsupervised learning is a beautiful idea. at both this past neurons and uh, ICML, uh, I was attending workshops or listening to various talks about self-supervised learning, which is one uh, vertical segment maybe of sort of unsupervised learning that I'm excited about. Uh, maybe just to summarize the idea, I, I guess you know the idea but I'll describe briefly. No, please. So here's an example of self-supervised learning let's say we grab a lot of unlabeled images off the internet. So with infinite amounts of this type of data, I'm gonna take each image and rotate it by a random multiple of 90 degrees. And then I'm going to train a supervised neural network to predict what was the original orientation. So has it been rotated 90 degrees, 180 degrees, 270 degrees or or zero degrees. So uh, you can generate an infinite amounts of label data because you rotated the image. So you know what's the ground truth label. And so uh, various researchers have found that by taking unlabeled data, and making up label data sets and training a large neural network on these tasks, you can then take the hidden layer representation and transfer it to a different task very powerfully. Um, Learning word embeddings, where we take a sentence, delete a word, predict the missing word, which is how we learn, one of the ways we learn word embeddings is another example. And I think um, there's now this portfolio of techniques for generating these made-up tasks. Um, another one called jigsaw would be if you take an image, cut it up into a you know three-by-three three grid, so like a nine three-by-three three puzzle piece, jump out the nine pieces and have a neural network predict which of the nine factorial possible permutations it, it, it came from. So uh, many groups, uh, including you know OpenAI, uh, Peter B has been looking, doing some work on this too. Uh, Facebook, uh, Google Brain, I think DeepMind. Um, oh, actually, uh, Aaron old has great work on the CPC objective. So many teams are doing exciting work, and I think this is a way to generate infinite label data. Uh, and and I find this a very exciting
0: piece of unsuvasani. So long term, you think that's going to unlock a lot of power in, in uh, machine learning systems? Is this kind of unsupervised learning? I,
1: I don't think there's a whole enchilada. I think it's right. just a piece of it. And I think this one piece, unsu- self-supervised learning, is starting to get traction. We're very close to it being useful. Uh, well, word embedding is really useful. Right. I think we're getting closer and closer to just having a, a significant real-world impact. Maybe in computer vision and video, uh, but I think this concept, uh, and and I think there'll be other concepts around it. You know, other unsupervised learning things that that I worked on i have been excited about. Um, I was really excited about sparse coding uh, and ICA, uh, slow feature analysis. I think all of these are ideas that various of us were working on about a decade ago before we all got distracted by how well <laughs> supervised learning was doing. Learning
0: worked, yeah. So we would of- return we would return to the fundamentals of representation learning that that really started this movement of deep learning.
1: I think there's a lot more work that one could explore around this theme of ideas and other ideas to come with better algorithms.
0: So if we could return to uh, maybe talk quickly about the specifics of uh, deeplearning.ai, the deep learning specialization perhaps, how long does it take to complete the course, would you say?
1: The official length of the deep learning specialization is I think 16 weeks, so about four months, uh, but it's uh, go at your own pace. So if you subscribe to the deep learning specialization, uh, there are people that finished it in less than a month by working more intensely and studying more intensely. So it really depends on on the individual. Yeah, when we created the Deep Specialization, uh, we wanted to make it very accessible and very affordable. Um, and with you know, Coursera and Deep education mission, one of the things that's really important to me is that if there's someone for whom paying anything is a, is a financial hardship, uh, then just apply for financial aid and, and get it for free.
0: If you were to recommend a daily schedule for people, in learning, whether it's through the deep deeplearning.ai specialization or just learning in the world of deep learning, uh, what would you recommend? How do they go about day-to-day sort of specific advice about learning, about their journey in, in the world of deep learning, machine learning?
1: I think um, getting the habit of learning is key and that means regularity. Um, so, for example, we send out our weekly newsletter, the Batch, every Wednesday, so people know it's coming Wednesday. You can spend a little bit of time on Wednesday catching up on the latest news uh, through the Batch on you know, on 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 Wednesday. Um, and for myself, I've picked up a habit of spending some time every Saturday and every Sunday reading or studying. And so I don't wake up on a Saturday and have to make a decision: Do I feel like reading or studying today, or not? It's just it's just what I do, and the fact is a habit makes it easier. So I think if um someone can get into that habit it's like you know just like we brush our teeth every morning I don't think about it. If I thought about it it's a little bit annoying to have to spend 2 minutes doing that. Uh but it's a habit that it takes no cognitive load. But this would be so much harder if we have to make a decision every morning. Um, so, and, and actually, that's the reason why we wear the same thing every day as well. It's just one <laughs> less decision. I just get up and I wear my blue shirt. So, but I think if you can get that habit, that consistency of studying, then then it actually feels easier.
0: So yeah, it's kind of amazing. In in my own life, like I I play guitar every day for. I forced myself to at least for five minutes play guitar. It's just, it's a ridiculously short period of time. But because I've gotten into that habit, it's incredible what you can accomplish in a period of a, a year or two years. You can become, you know, uh, exceptionally good at certain aspects of a thing by just doing it every day for a very short period of time. It's kind of a miracle that that's how it works. It adds up over time.
1: Yeah. And I think it's, it's, it's often not about the burst of sustained efforts and the all nighters, because you can only do that a limited number of times. It's the sustained effort over a long time. I think, you know, reading two research papers is a nice thing to do, but the power is not reading two research papers. It's reading two research papers a week for a year. Then you've read a hundred papers and, and you actually learn a lot when you read a hundred papers.
0: So regularity and making learning a, a habit. Do you have do you have general other study tips for particularly deep learning that people should in, in in their process of learning is there some kind of recommendations or tips you have as they learn
1: one thing I still do when I'm trying to study something really deeply is uh, take handwritten notes um, it varies I know there are a lot of people that take the deep learning courses during a commute uh, or something where where maybe more awkward to take notes so I know it may not work for everyone. But uh, when I'm taking courses on Coursera, you know, and I still take some every now and then, the most recent one I took was a, was a course on clinical trials because I was interested about that. I, I got out my little Milskin notebook and I was sitting in my desk I was just taking down notes of what the instructor was saying. And that act, we, we know that that act of taking notes, preferably handwritten notes, uh, uh, increases retention.
0: So as you're sort of watching the video, just kind of pausing maybe and then taking the basic insights down on paper?
1: Yeah, so there have been a few studies. If you you search online, you find some of these studies that um, taking handwritten notes because handwriting is slower, as we we're saying just now, right. um, it causes you to recode the knowledge in your own words more. And that process of recoding promotes long-term retention. This is as opposed to typing, which is fine. Again, typing is better than nothing or right? taking a class and not taking notes is better than not taking any class at all. But comparing handwritten notes and typing, um, you can usually type faster for a lot of people you can handwrite notes. And so when people type, they're more likely to just transcribe verbatim what they heard and that reduces the amount of recoding and that actually results in less long-term retention
0: i don't know what the psychological effect there is but it's so true there's something fundamentally different about writing hand handwriting i wonder what that is i wonder if it is as simple as just the time it takes to write is slower
1: yeah and, and 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 because uh because you can't write as many words, you have to take whatever they said and summarize it into fewer words. And that summarization process requires deeper processing of the meaning, which then results in better
0: attention. That's fascinating.
1: Oh, and I've spent, I spent, I think, yeah because of Coursera, I spent so much time studying pedagogy. It's, it's actually one <laughs> of my passions. I, I really love learning how to more efficiently help others learn. Um, yeah, w- one of the things I do both when creating videos or, or when we write the batch is, um, I try to think, is one minute spent with us going to be a more efficient learning experience than one minute spent anywhere else? And we really try to you know, make it time efficient for the learners because you know everyone's busy. So when, when we're editing, I, I, I often tell my teams, every word needs to fight for its life. And if we can delete a word, let's yeah. just delete it and not wait. let's not waste the learners' time.
0: Oh, that's so, it's so amazing that you think that way because there is millions of people that are impacted by your teaching and sort of that oh, one minute that? spent has a ripple effect, right? <laughs> Through years of time, which is just fascinating to think about. <laughs> how does one make a career out of an interest in deep learning? Do you have advice for people? We just talked about sort of the beginning, early steps, but if you want to make it an entire life's journey or at least a journey of a decade or two, how, how, do, how do you do it?
1: So, most important thing is to get started uh, right. and <laughs> and course. I think in the early parts of a career, coursework, um like the deep learning specialization uh, is a very efficient way to master this material. Uh, so because, you know, instructors, uh, be it me or someone else, or you know Lawrence Maroney teaches our TensorFlow specialization or you know, other things we're working on, spend effort to try to make it time efficient for you to learn a new concepts. So coursework is actually a very efficient way for people to learn concepts at the beginning parts of breaking into a new field. Um, in fact, one thing I see at Stanford, uh, some of my PhD students want to jump into research right away and I actually tend to say, look, in your first couple of years as a PhD student, spend time taking courses because uh, it lays the foundation. It's fine if you're less productive in your first couple of years. You, you'll be better off in the long term. Um, beyond a certain point, there's materials that doesn't exist in courses because it's too cutting edge. The course hasn't been created yet. There's some practical experience that we're not yet that good as teaching in a, in a course. And I think after exhausting the efficient coursework, then most people um, need to go on to uh, either... Ideally, work on projects uh, and then maybe also continue their learning by reading blog posts and research papers and things like that. Um, doing projects is really important. And again, I think it's important to start small and to just do something. Uh, today, you read about deep learning, it feels like, oh, all these people are doing such exciting things. What if I'm not building a neural network that changes the world? Then what's the point? Well, the point is sometimes building that tiny neural network, you know, be it MNIST or upgrade to fashion MNIST to, to whatever, it's doing your own fun hobby project. That's how you gain the skills to let you do bigger and bigger projects. I find this to be true at the individual level and also at the organizational level. For a company to become good at machine learning, sometimes the right thing to do is not to tackle the giant project is instead to do the small project that lets the organization learn and then build out from there. But this is true both for individuals and 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 for and for companies. To,
0: to taking the first step and then taking small steps mm-hmm. is the key. Should students pursue a PhD, do you think? You can do so much. That's one of the fascinating things in machine learning. You can have so much impact without ever getting a PhD. So what are your thoughts? Should people go to grad school? Should people get a PhD? I think that there are multiple good options
1: of which doing a PhD could be one of them. I think that if, if someone's admitted to a top PhD program, you know, at MIT, Stanford, top schools, uh, I think that's a very good experience. Uh, or if someone gets a job at a top organization, at the top AI team, I think that's also a very good experience. Um, there are some things you still need a PhD to do. If someone's aspiration is to be a professor, you know, the top academic university, you just need a PhD to do that. Uh, but if it goes to you know, start a company, build a company, do great technical work, I think a PhD is a good experience. But I would look at the different options available to someone. You know, where the places where you can get a job, where the places you can get in a PhD program, and kind of weigh the pros and cons of those.
0: So just to linger on that for a little bit longer, what final dreams and goals do you think people should have? So. Um, the, what options should they explore? So you can work in industry. So for a large company, uh, like Google, Facebook, Baidu, all these large sort of companies that already have huge teams of machine learning engineers. You can also do within industry, sort of more research groups that kind of like Google research, Google brain. Then you can also do, uh, like we said, a professor in, ac- as in academia and, uh, what else? Oh, you can still build your own company. <laughs> you can do a startup. Is there anything that stands out between those options or are they all beautiful different journeys that people should consider?
1: I think the thing that affects your experience more is less um, are you in this company versus that company or academia versus industry. I think the thing that affects your experience most is who are the people you're interacting with in a in a daily basis. So um, even if you look at some of the large companies, the experience of individuals in different teams is very different. And what matters most is not the logo above the door when you walk into the giant building every day. What matters the most is who are the 10 people, who are the 30 people you interact with every day? So I actually tend to advise people, um, if you get a job from a from a company, ask who is your manager, Who are your peers? Who are you actually going to talk to? We're all social creatures. We tend to, you know, become more like the people around us. And uh, if you're working with great people, you will learn faster. Uh, Or if you get admitted, if you get a job at a great company or a great university, maybe the logo you walk in you know, it's great, but you're actually stuck on some team doing really work that doesn't excite you, uh, and then that's actually a really bad experience. So this is true both for um, universities and for large companies. For small companies, you can kind of figure out who you would be working with quite quickly. And I tend to advise people if a company refuses to tell you who you will work with, someone say, Oh, join us, the rotation system, we'll figure it out. I think that that that's a worrying answer because it. Yeah, because it, it means you may not get sense to, you may not actually get to to a team with, with, with great peers and great people to work with.
0: It's actually a really profound advice that we kind of sometimes sweep. We don't consider too rigorously or carefully is the people around you are really often, especially when you accomplish great things, it seems the great things are accomplished because of the people around you. So that, that's a... Um, it's not about the, the whether you learn this thing or that thing, or like you said, the logo that hangs up top, it's the people, that's a fascinating, and it's such a hard search process yeah. <laughs> of finding, just like finding the right uh, friends and uh, somebody to get married with and that kind of yeah. thing. It's a very hard search, pro- it's a people search problem.
1: Yeah, but I think when someone interviews you know, at a university or the research lab or the large corporation, it's good to insist on just asking, who are the people? Who is my manager? And if you refuse to tell me, I'm going to think, well, maybe that's because you don't have a good answer. It may not be someone I like.
0: And if you don't particularly connect, if something feels off with the people, uh, then don't stick uh, to it. You know, That's a really important signal to consider.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and actually, I, I actually um in my standard class CS two thirty, as was well an ACM talk, I, I think I gave like a hour long talk on uh, career advice, including uh, on the job search process and, and some of these So So you so if you can find those
0: videos online, awesome, and I'll point advice. them. Oh. I'll, I'll point people to them. Beautiful. So the AI fund helps AI startups get off the ground, or perhaps you can elaborate on all the fun things it's involved with. What's your advice on how does one build a successful AI startup?
1: You know, in Silicon Valley, a lot of startup failures come from building a products that no one wanted. So when, <laughs> uh, you know, cool technology, but yeah. who's going to use it? So I think I tend to be very outcome driven um, and, and, and customer obsessed. Uh, ultimately, we don't get to vote if we succeed or fail. It's only the customer that they're the only one that gets a thumbs up or thumbs down votes in the long term. In the short term, you know, there are various people that get various votes, but in the long term, that's what really matters.
0: So as you build a startup, you have to constantly ask the question, will the customer give a thumbs up on this?
1: I think so. I think uh, startups that are very customer focused, customer obsessed, deeply understand the customer and are oriented to serve the customer um, are more likely to succeed uh, with a proviso that I think all of us should only do things that we think create social good and moves the world forward. So, right. so I, I, I personally don't want to build addictive digital products just to sell a lot of ads. Or you know, There are things that, that could be lucrative that I won't do. Um, uh, but if we can find ways to serve people in meaningful ways, um, I think those can, be, those can be great things to do uh, either in an academic setting or in a corporate setting or a startup setting.
0: So can you give me the idea of why you started the AI, the AI fund?
1: I remember when I was leading the AI group at uh, Baidu, um, I had two jobs, two parts of my job. One was to build an AI engine to support the existing businesses, and that that, that was running, you know, just ran, just. Performed by itself, the second part of my job at the time, which was to try to systematically initiate new lines of businesses uh, using the company's AI capabilities. So, you know, the self-driving car team came out of my group. The smart speaker team, uh, similar to what is um, Amazon Echo Alexa in the US, uh, but we actually announced it before Amazon did. So, I do wasn't following Am- wasn't following Am- Amazon. That that came out of my group, and I found that. To be um, actually the, the most fun part of my job. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what I wanted to do was to build AI Fund as a startup studio to systematically create new startups from scratch. With all of the things we can now do of AI, I think the ability to build new teams to go after this rich space of opportunities is a very important way to very important mechanism to get these projects done that I think will move the world forward. So I've, I've been fortunate to built a few teams that had a meaningful, positive impact. And I felt that um, we might be able to do this in a more systematic, repeatable way. So a startup studio is a relatively new concept. There, there are maybe dozens of startup studios you know, right now, uh, but uh, I feel like all of us, many teams are still trying to figure out how do you systematically build companies with a high success rate. So I think um, e- even a lot of my you know, venture capital friends are seem to be more and more building companies rather than investing in companies. But I find it a fascinating thing to do to figure out the mechanisms by which we could systematically build successful teams, successful businesses um, in, in areas that we find
0: meaningful. So a startup studio is, something, is, a, is a place and a mechanism for startups to go from zero to success, to so try to develop a blueprint
1: it's actually a place for us to build startups from scratch. So we often uh, bring in founders and work with them, or maybe even have existing ideas that we match founders with. uh, And then this launches, you know, hopefully into successful companies.
0: So how close are you to figuring out a way to automate the process of starting from scratch and building a successful AI startup?
1: Yeah, I think uh, with, We've been constantly improving and iterating on our processes for how we do that. Uh, so things like you know how many customer calls do we need to make in order to get customer validation? Uh, how do we make sure that the technology can be built? Quite a lot of our businesses need cutting-edge machine learning algorithms. So you know, kind of algorithms that developed in the last one or two years. And even if it works in a research paper, it turns out taking to production is really hard. There are a lot of issues for making these things work in the real life uh, uh, that are not widely addressed in academia. So how do we validate that this is actually doable? How do you build a team, get the specialized domain knowledge, be it in education or healthcare or whatever sector we're focusing on? So I think we're actually getting, we've actually been getting much better at um, giving the entrepreneurs a high success rate, but I think we're still, I think the whole world is still yes, in the early phases figuring this out.
0: But you, do you think there is some... Um aspects of that process that are transferable from one startup to another, to another, to another.
1: Yeah, very much so. Um, you know, starting a company to most entrepreneurs is a, is a really lonely thing. And I've seen so many entrepreneurs not know how to make certain decisions. Like when, when, when do you need to, uh, how do you do B2B sales, right? If you don't know that, it's, just, it's, it's really hard. Or uh, how do you market this efficiently, other than you know buying ads, which is really expensive, other more efficient tactics to that, or uh, for a machine learning project, you know, basic decisions can change the course of whether a machine learning product works or not. And so there are so many hundreds of decisions that entrepreneurs need to make, and making a mistake in a couple of key decisions can have a huge impact uh, uh, in, on on the fate of the company. So I think a startup studio provides a support structure that makes starting a company much less of a lonely experience. And also, um, when facing with these key decisions, like trying to hire your first uh, uh, VP of engineering, what's a good selection criteria? How do you solve? Should I hire this person or not? By helping, by having, by having our ecosystem around the entrepreneurs, the founders, to help, I think we help them at the key moments and, and hopefully significantly um, make them more enjoyable and, and higher success rate.
0: So they have somebody to brainstorm with in these very difficult decision points,
1: and also to help them recognize what they may not even
0: realize is a key decision point. <laughs> right. That's that's the first and probably the most yeah. important part. Yeah.
1: Actually, I can say one other thing. Um, you know, I, I think uh, building companies is one thing, but I, I feel like it's really important that we build companies that move the world forward. Uh, for example, within the AI Fund team, there was once an idea for a, a new company that if it had succeeded, would have resulted in people watching a lot more videos in a certain narrow vertical type of video. Um I looked at it, the business case was fine, the revenue case was fine, but I looked at it and I just said, I don't want to do this. Like, you know, I, I don't actually just want to have a lot more people watch this type of video. It wasn't educational. It's was an educational baby. Yeah. And so, and so I, 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 I code the idea on the basis that I didn't think it would actually help people. So um, whether building companies or work of enterprises or doing personal projects, I think um, it's up to each of us to figure out what's the difference we want to make in the world.
0: With Lending AI, you help already established companies grow their AI and machine learning efforts. How does a large company integrate machine learning into their efforts?
1: AI is a general purpose technology, and I think it will transform every industry. Um, our community has already transformed to a large extent the software internet sector. Most software internet companies outside the top, right? Five or six or three or four um, already have reasonable machine learning capabilities or or getting there. There's still room for improvement. Um, But when I look outside the software internet sector, everything from manufacturing, agriculture, healthcare, logistics, transportation, there's so many opportunities that uh, very few people are working on. So I think the next way for AI is for us to also transform all of those other industries. There was a McKinsey study estimating $13 trillion of uh, global economic growth. uh, uh, U.S. GDP is $19 trillion, so $13 trillion is a big number. Or PwC estimates $16 trillion, so whatever number is it's large. But the interesting thing to me was a lot of that impact would be outside the software internet sector. So we need more teams um, to work with these companies to help them adopt AI. And I think this is one of the things that'll make, you know, help drive global economic growth and make humanity more powerful.
0: And like you said, the impact is there. So what are the best industries, the biggest industries where AI can help perhaps outside the software tech sector?
1: Um, frankly, I think it's all of them. Uh, <laughs> the, the, some, some of the ones I'm spending a lot of time on are manufacturing, manufacturing. agriculture, look into healthcare. Um, for example, in manufacturing, uh, we do a lot of work in visual inspection, where today there are people standing around using the eye, human eye, to check if you know this plastic part or the smartphone or this thing has a scratch or a dent or something in it. Um, we can use a camera to take a picture, use a algorithm, deep learning, and other things to check if it's defective or not, uh, and does help factories improve yield and improve quality and improve throughput. It turns out the practical problems we run into are very different than the ones you might read about in in most research papers. The data sets are really small, so we face small data problems. Um, The factories keep on changing the environment, so it works well on your test set. But guess what? You know, the, the uh, something changes in the factory. The lights go on or off. Recently, we there was a factory in which um, a bird threw through the factory and pooped on something, and so that you know, so that changed stuff, and so. Increasing our, our robustness to so all the changes happen in the factory. Uh, I find that we run a lot of practical problems that, that are not as widely discussed in, in academia. And it's really fun kind of being on the cutting edge, solving these problems before, you know, m- maybe before many people are even aware that there is a problem there.
0: And that's uh, such a fascinating space. You're absolutely right. But what what is the first step that a company should take? It's just a scary leap into this new world of, going from the human eye inspecting to digitizing that process, having a camera, having an algorithm. What's the first step? Like what's the early journey that you recommend that you see these companies taking?
1: I published a document called the AI Transformation Playbook uh, that's Mm -hmm. online and and taught briefly in the AI for Everyone course on Coursera about the long-term journey that companies should take. But the first step is actually to start small. Um, I've seen a lot more companies fail by starting too big than by starting too small. Um, take even Google. You know, most people don't realize how hard it was and how controversial it was in the early days. So when I started Google Brain, um, it was controversial. You know, people thought deep learning, neural nets, tried it didn't work. Why would you want to do deep learning? So my first internal customer within Google was the Google speech team, which is not the most lucrative project in Google, uh, not the most important. It's not web search or advertising. But by starting small, um, my team helped the speech team build a more accurate speech recognition system. And this caused their peers, other teams, to start to have more faith in deep learning. My second internal customer was uh, the Google Maps team, where we used computer vision to read house numbers you know, from basic street view images to more accurately locate houses within Google Maps, so improve the quality of the geodata. And it was only after those two successes that I then started the more serious conversation with the Google Ads team.
0: And so there's a ripple effect that you showed that it works in these in these cases and then it just uh, propagates through the entire company that this this thing has a lot of value and use for us.
1: I think the early small scale projects it helps the teams gain faith but also helps the teams learn what these technologies do. Um, I still remember when our first GPU server, it was a server under some guy's desk. And you know, and and then that taught us early important lessons about how do you um have multiple users share a set of GPUs, which was really non-obvious at the time, but those early lessons were important. We learned a lot from that first GPU server that later helped the teams think through how to scale it up to to much larger deployments.
0: Are there concrete challenges that companies face that, uh, that you see is important for them to solve?
1: I think building and deploying machine learning systems is hard. Uh, there's a huge gulf between something that works in a Jupyter notebook on your laptop versus something right. that runs in a production deployment setting in a, in a factory or agriculture plant or whatever. Um, so I see a lot of people, you know, get something to work on your laptop and say, wow, look what I've done. And that's, that's, that's great. That's hard. That's a very important first step. But a lot of teams underestimate the rest of the steps needed um so for example i've heard this exact same conversation between a lot of machine learning people and business people the machine learning person says look my algorithm does well on the test set it's a clean test set i didn't peak um, and then machine and the business person says thank you very much but your algorithm sucks it doesn't work <laughs> yeah. and the machine learning person says no wait i did well on the test set um and i think there is a Gulf between what it takes to do well on a test set on your hard drive versus what it takes to work well in a in a deployment setting. Uh, some some common problems, um, robustness and generalization. You know, you deploy something in the factory. Maybe they chop down a tree outside the factory, so the uh, tree no longer covers the window and the lighting is different. So the test set changes. Yeah. And in machine learning, and especially in academia we don't know how to deal with test set distributions that are dramatically different than the training set distribution you know this there, research the stuff like uh, domain annotation uh, transfer learning you know there' the people working on it but we're really not good at this so how do you actually get this to work because your test set distribution is going to change uh, uh, and I think um also, If you look at the number of lines of code in the software system, the machine learning model is maybe 5% or even fewer uh, relative to the entire software system you need to build. So how do you get all that work done and make it reliable and systematic?
0: So good software engineering work is fundamental here uh, to, to building a successful small machine learning system.
1: Yes, and, and and the software system needs to interface with people's workloads. So machine learning is automation on steroids. If we take one task out of many tasks that are done in the factory. So a factory does lots of things. One task is visual inspection if we automate that one task, it can be really valuable. But you may need to redesign a lot of other tasks around that one task. For example, say the machine learning algorithm says this is defective. What are you supposed to do? Do you throw it away? Do you get a human to double check? Do you want to rework it or fix it? Uh, so you need to redesign a lot of tasks around that thing you've now automated. So planning for the change management and making sure that the software you write is consistent with the new workflow. And you take the time to explain to people what needs to happen. So I think... Um, what landing AI has become good at, uh, and, and I think we learn by making mistakes and you know, painful experiences, well, my, right. what we've become good at is working with our partners to think through um, all the things beyond just the machine learning model or running a Jupyter notebook, but to uh, build the entire system, manage the change process, and figure out how to deploy this in a way that has an actual impact the processes that the large software tech companies use for deploying don't work for a lot of other scenarios. Uh, for example, when I was leading you know, large speech teams, um, if the speech recognition system goes down, what happens? Well, alarms goes off, and then someone like me would say, hey, you 20 engineers, please fix this, right? <laughs> and it would get... But if you have a system garden in a factory, there are not 20 machine learning engineers sitting around you can page a duty and have them fix it. So how do you deal with the maintenance or the, or the dev ops or the MLOps or, or the other aspects of this? So these are um, concepts that I think landing AI and, and, and a few other teams are on the cutting edge. but we don't even have systematic terminology yet to describe some of the stuff we do because I think we're, we're inventing it on the fly.
0: So you mentioned some people are interested in discovering mathematical beauty and truth in the universe, and you're interested in having a big positive impact in the world. So let me ask a- The,
1: the two are not inconsistent. No, they're, they're all together.
0: Parts, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm only half joking, because you're probably interested a little bit in both. But let me ask a romanticized question. So much of the work, uh, your work and our discussion today has been on applied AI. Maybe you can even call narrow AI where the goal is to create systems that automate some specific process that adds a lot of value to the world. But there's another branch of AI starting with Alan Turing that kind of dreams of creating human level or superhuman level intelligence. Is this something you dream of as well? Do you think we human beings will ever build a human level intelligence or superhuman level intelligence system?
1: I would love to get to AGI and I think humanity will but whether it takes a hundred years or 500 or 5,000, I find hard to estimate.
0: <laughs> do you have, uh, so s- some folks have worries about the different trajectories that path would take, uh, even existential threats of an AGI system. Do you have such concerns whether in the short term or the long term? I
1: do worry about the long-term fate of humanity. Um, I do wonder as well, I do worry about overpopulation on the planet Mars. Uh, Just not today. I think there will be a day when maybe maybe someday in the future Mars will be polluted. There are all these children dying. And someone will look back at this video and say, Andrew, how was Andrew so heartless? He didn't care about all these children dying on the planet Mars. And, and I apologize to the future viewer. I do yeah. care about the children, but I just don't know how to productively work on that today.
0: <laughs> Your picture will be in the uh, dictionary for the people who are ignorant about the overpopulation on Mars. <laughs> yes. Uh, so it's a long-term problem. Is there something in the short term we should be thinking about in terms of aligning the values of our AI systems with the values of us humans, sort of uh, something that Stuart Russell and other folks are thinking about, as this system develops more and more, we wanna make sure that it represents the better angels of our nature, the the the, the ethics, the values of our society.
1: You know, if, if you take self-driving cars, um, the biggest problem with self-driving cars is not that there's some trolley dilemma and you teach this so you know how how many times when you're driving your car did you face this moral dilemma who do i who who do i crash into so i think self-driving cars will run into that problem roughly as often as we do when we drive our cars um the biggest problem with self-driving cars is when there's a big white truck across the road Mm -hmm. and what you should do is brake and not crash into it and Self-driving car fails and it crashes into it. So I think we need to solve that problem first. I think the problem with some of these discussions about um, AGI, you know, uh, alignments, the paperclip problem, yes. uh, is that is a huge distraction from the much harder problems that we actually need to address today. Some of the hard problems we need to address today, I think um, bias is a huge issue. Um, I worry about wealth inequality. Uh, the, the, the AI and internet are. Causing an acceleration of concentration of power because we can now uh, centralize data, use AI to process it. And so, industry after industry, we've affected every industry. So, the internet industry has a lot of win and take, most of win and take all dynamics, but we've, we've infected all these other industries. So, we're also giving these other industries win and take, most of win and take all flavor. So look at what um, Uber and Lyft did to the taxi industry. So we're doing this type of thing it's a lot. Of, so this, so we're creating tremendous wealth. But how do we make sure that the wealth is fairly shared? Um, I think that uh, uh, and and how do we help people whose jobs are displaced? You know, I think education is part of it. There may be even more that we need to do than education. Um, uh, I think bias is a serious issue. Uh, there are adverse uses of AI, like deepfakes, being used for various nefarious purposes. So I worry about uh, some teams, maybe accidentally, and I hope not deliberately, making a lot of noise about things that problems in the distant future rather than focusing on some sort of the much harder problems.
0: Yeah, they overshadow the problems that we have already today that are exceptionally challenging, like those you said, and even the silly ones, but the ones that have a huge impact, which is the lighting variation outside of your factory window, yeah. that, uh, that ultimately is what makes the difference between, like you said, the Jupiter notebook and something that actually transforms an entire industry potentially.
1: Yeah, and I think, and, and just to, to, to some companies or a regulator comes to you and says, look, your product is messing things up. Uh, fixing it may have a revenue impact. Well, it's much more fun to talk to them about how you promise not to wipe out humanity than, than to face
0: the actually really hard problems we face. So your life has been a great journey from teaching to research to entrepreneurship. So two questions. One, are there regrets moments that if you went back, you would do differently? And two, are there moments you're especially proud of? Moments that made you truly happy?
1: You know, I've made so many mistakes. <laughs> uh, it feels like every time I discover something, um, I go, why didn't I think of this, you know, five years earlier or even yeah. 10 years earlier? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, uh, as recently, and and sometimes I read a book and I go, I wish I read this book 10 years ago. My life would have been so different. Although that happened recently. And then I, I was thinking, if only I read this book when we we're starting up Coursera, it could have been so much better. Um, but I discovered the book had not yet been written when we're starting Coursera. So that made me feel better. <laughs> uh, but I find that the process of discovery, we keep on finding out things that seem so obvious in hindsight, um, but it always takes us so much longer than
0: than I wish to to figure it out. So on the second question, um, are there moments in your life that, if you look back, that, that you're especially proud of or you're especially happy, the, that filled you with happiness and fulfillment?
1: Well, two answers. One, does my daughter know her?
0: Yes, uh, of course.
1: like no know how much time I spend with her, I just can't spend enough time with her. Congratulations, oh, by the way. Thank you. And then second is uh, helping other people. I think, to me, I think the meaning of life is um, helping others achieve whatever are their dreams. And then also to try to move the world forward by making humanity more powerful as a whole. So the times that I felt most happy and most proud was when I felt um, someone else allowed me the good fortune of helping them a little bit on the path to their dreams.
0: I think there's no better way to end it than talking about happiness and the meaning of life. So, Andrew, it's a huge honor. Me and millions of people, thank you for all the work you've done. Thank you for talking today. Thank you so much, thanks. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Andrew Eng. And thank you to our presenting sponsor, Cash App. Download it, use code LexPodcast, you'll get $10, and $10 will go to FIRST, an organization that inspires and educates young minds to become science and technology innovators of tomorrow. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe on YouTube, give it five stars on Apple Podcasts, support it on Patreon, or simply connect with me on Twitter at Lex Friedman. And now let me leave you with some words of wisdom from Andrew Eng. Ask yourself, if what you're working on succeeds beyond your wildest dreams, would you have significantly helped other people? If not, then keep searching for something else to work on. Otherwise, you're not living up to your full potential.